I focus particularly on three of those threats, which are climate change, pandemics, and loss of biodiversity, because we have common solutions in some instances for all three, which is repairing our broken relationship with nature. This is Climate Curious, the podcast for people who are bored, scared, or confused by climate change. I'm Marion Pasha, the director and curator at TEDx London and the co-host of this podcast, alongside the amazing Ben. Hi, I'm Ben Hurst activist and advocate exploring what positive masculinities can look like and self-confessed climate normie. Bugs, creepy crawlies, other unmentionable creatures that we can't mention because they begin with an S and I'm really afraid of them. Um, We love Halloween at TEDx London. Um, And... We were thinking about some ways we could bring some good old spooky goodness into our event this evening. And then we remembered... Oh, it feels like I'm reading a spooky story. And then we remembered... Oh, wait, we're living in a real-life horror story right now, and it's called Climate Change, which is pretty dark, but... Uh, we were reminded of an awesome speaker that we met the other day at TED Countdown, sorry, this year. Um, and he wrote this wild breakout article in the New York Times explaining how The Last of Us, the TV show, and the video game uh, was pretty accurate because our planet is literally a warming petri dish <laughs> waiting for its next fungal zombie disease to run rampant. Sorry, sorry. That's, again, <laughs> pretty cover. dark. Sorry, okay. sorry. But you, you've had... Too many climate solutions this evening. Um, actually, no, that's, that's not true. inaccurate as well. Yeah, more. he's going to have, have climate solutions as well, but we'll get, we'll, get, we'll get into it. All right, let me tell you about him. Our guest this evening is a physician with Conservation International. He is a disease detective working in pan- pandemic prevention. He's worked around the world responding to Ebola outbreaks and leading New York City's COVID-19 contact tracing program. And he also has <laughs> yeah. some amazing yes, yes. tattoos, which he'll tell you about in a little bit. <laughs> so on a mission to connect health to the climate crisis, please welcome Dr. Neil Vora. Um, Don't worry, we, okay, so Neil, thank you so much for joining us. We're super excited to have this conversation. Oh, thank you for having me. It's such an honor to be here and and to join this amazing event. Mm. Neil is everyone's favorite person. Did you know that? (laughs) Literally every person backstage was like, have you met Neil yet? I know. He's so nice. You'll really like him. So You guys guys know (laughs) (laughs) You're just jealous. Yeah. Um, Okay, so let me start with the fact that when I, have people here seen The Last of Us? or played The Last of Us a little bit. Right, so I was like there, obviously watching it for um, the, the, the plot. And what? <laughs> what? And I was really, really surprised actually that in that opening scene, I'm not giving anything away here, um, you start, they start talking about climate change mm. right away. Um, and it, you know, we're not gonna talk a lot about funguses, and if you didn't know, that's what The Last of Us is about. It's about Fungus zombies, um, which we're not going to talk about because that make that upsets Ben. But, yeah, I haven't seen The Last of Us because um, I want to talk about. Fungus and we're going to get into a little bit about why you wrote that article for the New York Times and what it means. But before we start any of that, can you? We know what you do, but will you tell us a little bit more about you? Yeah, sure. Um, I guess I'd like to say that I'm a, a doctor who specializes in rainforest conservation. You know, for as long as I can remember, I've wanted to do public health. My 
uh, dad was born in India, and he actually had smallpox as a child. And so over 70 years later, uh, you can still see the legacy that the disease left mm. on him in the form of scars uh, on his face. And so growing up, I would look at him, and I learned very early on about the field of public health and the amazing work that public health workers did in the 60s and 70s to eradicate smallpox. That's a gift that keeps on giving. None of us essentially have to worry about smallpox mm. through natural transmission. Uh, but at the same time, I also love animals. I mean, I've been obsessed with animals also for as long as I can remember. And so I decided that I would go into um, a medical career, but sh- sh- uh, aim my career at saving nature for people. And I'm living the dream right now. I get to work for Conservation International, and I talk about saving rainforests every day so that we can keep people alive. It's so just, it's, a, it's a dream job. It's awesome. And, and we want to actually talk a lot about that. Um, but before, because I just need to ask a little bit more about The Last of Us. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah, okay. I'll allow that. On this um, yeah. And this article, because I, I was working with Neil um, on his TED Talk, which will come out shortly, and you sent me this article from the New York Times, which I then read and, like, panic sent to everyone I know. <laughs> um, tell us a little bit about what was in that article and, why, and how that relates to funguses and, and climate change. Yeah. Well, first thing I'll say is that I love zombies and vampires. Right. And um, oh. this, this... This is going to be stressful, isn't it? I can feel it coming. I can feel it. Go on. Sorry. So the show is very good. And if you... Just very briefly, the idea is that climate change has led to a mutation of a fungal species that normally infects ants and essentially turns them into zombies. But climate change has caused that fungus to evolve into one that can infect people and turn them into zombies. Um, and so it's, it's a very scary story. Now, I don't think that we are facing a zombie apocalypse right, right, anytime right. soon for climate change. Right? Yeah, it doesn't sound like yeah. that, does it? It sounds <laughs> like we actually are imminently facing that because the fungus is infected. Sorry, okay. carry on, sorry. Yeah, so to be very clear though, no, no zombie apocalypse as far as I can tell. Though there are a lot of interesting parasites out there that can beyond this fung- fungal disease okay, in ants about? that can turn a number of different organisms essentially into zombies. Fascinating stuff. But That's another episode. Yeah, that's that another we episode. That won't involve Ben in. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. This is not going to translate well to a podcast, but I am freaking out. Okay. This is bad. Okay, so tell, us, in, tell us a bit more. Uh, in all seriousness, this is actually scary stuff. I mean, in that infectious diseases... <laughs> Not reassuring. Uh, no, I, I, we're going to get to a better. I'm, I'm, I'm we're going to get there. We're going to trust me. We're going to get to the stuff that's reassuring. But, but what concerns me is that climate change is increasing the threat of fungal epidemics, and also increasing our vulnerability to those fungal epidemics. So what do I mean by that? There are over a million different species of fungi. We've only characterized around five percent of them. What? Sorry. What is characterized? Meaning, like identified them. Okay. Yeah. 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 Cool. And only a small proportion of that 5% can actually cause human disease. Now, part of the reason why we don't see more fungal diseases in in humans is that there's this thermal barrier, that many fungi thrive at temperatures lower than the human body temperature, Right. right? So we're normally at around 36, 37 centigrade. But with climate change, we might be seeing evolutionary pressures on fungi such that they can adapt to live at warmer and warmer temperatures. Oh. Making some capable... <laughs> what yeah. is going on? Yeah. No, it, it, that's, that's one set of concerns. There's, there's actually one species of fungal disease that's very concerning called 
Candida auris, that is spreading in hospital settings and healthcare facilities, that in some outbreaks of this, of this fungal disease, again, in hospitalized individuals, 50% of people might die. Right? But these, again, are people who are already very sick. But one theory for how this uh, fungus emerged back in 2009, was when it was first recognized, is because of climate change. That maybe because of climate change, this yeast developed the ability to live at warmer temperatures, made its way onto birds, that then made its way into people. Right? So that's, that's one set of concerns. Another concern is that because of climate change, we're going to see more floods. We're going to see more droughts in areas. And with flooding in some areas, with droughts in other areas, we might see the spread of existing fungal diseases into a wider geographic area. Right? So that's the increased threat. But at the same time, we are becoming more vulnerable in several different ways. First of all, climate change is causing epidemics of kidney disease in certain parts of the world because of the excess heat. Kidney disease increases our vulnerability to infectious diseases in some instances. We're seeing malnutrition. We're going to see more and more now malnutrition, and again, that'll increase our susceptibility to infectious diseases. And the area that I work on a lot is zoonotic diseases. I, I tend to focus on viruses, and we're going to see more and more zoonotic viruses emerge because of climate change and other drivers. When I say zoonotic viruses, that means viruses that are normally in animals that then jump into people. Oh, swine flu and all of them things there. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So swine oh, flu is an example, on. Ebola, probably also COVID. And, you know, we saw it with HIV, sadly in the 80s, a rise of opportunistic fungal infections. And, and it was many of... People don't necessarily... Because HIV suppresses the immune, immune system. system, right? We saw something similar with COVID, yeah. that pe there was a rise of fungal disease. So the point right. here is that fungal disease are a major blind spot, and I think we need to be paying more attention to them. Okay. So this is why you wrote the article, yeah. because it is like a bit of a blind spot, right? And we don't... We can't treat those as of now, those kinds of fungal... Is that, Not is that, that part well, of it? right? So the, uh, the other problem is that fungal cells are somewhat similar to human cells compared to like a bacteria right. or a virus. And so the medicines we use to treat fungal disease can often have very severe side effects in people. So we, we don't even have that many good medicines, no licensed vaccine as of now. Right. Okay. Sorry, for context, I just want you all to know that I'm actually learning this all at the same time. There's been no like pre-conversation where I've been exposed to this information. This is like petrifyingly bad. They're just casually sitting here like, oh, we don't have any solutions. Oh, you can't treat well, it. We do this, have solutions. This is bad. This is really bad. Okay, we're carry taking, on. We're You're taking you and everyone on a journey, Ooh, right, Neil? As this we is always not do. a fun journey. As we always do. Um, okay, we've talked a little bit about that. Can we zoom out for a second? Mm -hmm. Because you've talked about climate change and its impact on, like, funguses, let's say. What about the... And I think, just to say, for me, one of the things that's really interesting here is that we just don't often think about climate change and health in these kinds of many intersections, right? right. We often have, like, maybe we think about, like, extreme heat yeah. or something like that. But I want to talk about these intersections of, of, of climate and health and, and, and what that... Why that's a greater threat today. Like, what's happening? So... Someone else, several other people have said this before me. I'm just quoting them. But the human face of climate change is health. The way that many people will experience climate change is because of a worsening health condition that they will face themselves or one of their loved ones. 
And the World Health Organization even considers climate change the greatest threat to human health we face today. This is not some distant threat. People are dying right now because of climate change. Every day we hear about floods around the world. I live in New York City. In New York City, just like a few months ago, I mean, one day I'm obsessed with jujitsu. I go to the jujitsu gym, it was like five o'clock, I leave at like seven o'clock at night, and suddenly everything, you know, I couldn't see more than 20 feet in front of me, right? Because wildfire smoke, smog had come in from Canada. Right? And, and, and that causes worsening asthma, exacerbates existing lung disease. The point here is that climate change is killing us, and we have to understand the intersectionality of these crises. We are facing multiple converging existential threats, and we're addressing them as silos. But the solutions to these existential threats of pandemics, climate change, the loss of biodiversity, will exist in a transdisciplinary space. And that's why we have to start thinking about how climate is affecting human health, is affecting biodiversity, is affecting so many other aspects of society, such as economy. Right. <laughs> Do you have any questions? You are looking at the wrong person, <laughs> honestly. I'm sorry, I'm not being very so, helpful here. No, it's fine. It's, it's good, going. it's good. When you have questions, you just I go. Will. I've got many questions. You go. Um, okay, so we've got these converging threats, but you specifically work on nature. Yeah. Talk to us about that. Um, for many, many years, I was made to feel ashamed of caring about nature. You know, I, I went through this medical That's training. Yeah, and, and, you know, the messaging I was getting was that, you know, you focus on humans, focusing on trees or polar bears or whatever it is, is a distraction from saving humans. Mm. But the reality is, is that we need nature to survive. Without nature, we're not going to thrive as a species. Everything is interdependent. Mm. And that's what we seem to have forgotten. We, we seem to have gone down this track of human exceptionalism, that somehow humans are different. And again, I'm just quoting someone else. Uh, hum, uh, humans, we are not apart from, apart from nature. We are a part of nature. Right. And, so, and so the point here is that my work is about trying to save nature for people. And I focus specifically on trying to save rainforests to prevent future outbreaks of infectious diseases. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Because we're, in theory, or in practice, actually, we're just another animal that lives on the planet, right? Like, we're not actually any different. We have opposable thumbs and, yeah. like, buildings and stuff. But ants have buildings, so we're not that different. Like, we're not yeah. as different as we think we are. Yeah, you're... Yeah. And if we're saving it for animals, then we should, we're also saving it for ourselves, I guess. Yeah. Absolutely, right? We're, you know, we're not going to have clean water. We're not going to have food, right? We heard about peatlands and, and the importance of, of that for our water supply. I mean, we need nature to survive is, at the end of the day. We won't have food. We won't have water. We won't have good mental health. We won't have protection from infectious disease. We won't have medicines. You know, nature is a medicine chest. And we, you know, are, are basically throwing it in the trash when we have so many, un, so many diseases that are currently difficult to treat. Mm -hmm. So I might be jumping ahead here, correct me if I'm wrong. You're, how does your, I don't understand how the work that you do, do you work with people or do you work with animals? Um, or do you work with rainforests? 
I work behind a computer a lot and send a lot of emails. <laughs> right, 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 so, right, 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 okay. <laughs> but so I mostly, I mostly do policy advocacy, and, and more recently, uh, I have the great honor of being a co-chair for a new Lancet commission. The Lancet is a medical journal, um, and so I have two amazing co-chairs, and, and we have around 30 uh, brilliant commissioners from around the world, and together we are trying to um, basically lead a scientific effort to look at how to prevent pandemics. Right. And so I do science and policy work. So I, wanna, I, think I'm, I think I know the question you're asking. I'm going to pick at it a little bit, yeah, which is this idea of, you mentioned rainforests, that you work specifically on, ra specifically on rainforests. And I know that you cover this in your TED Talk, but can you give us like a bird's eye view of the relationship specifically with rainforests and health and, and mm -hmm. why these two have these interactions? Mm -hmm. So rainforests have many health benefits, right? Medicines, food, biodiversity, right? And that's like the, the big picture, mental health. I focus specifically on the infectious disease side, right? So to take a step back, since at least the 1940s, we have seen infectious diseases increasingly emerge around the world. And most of those emerging infectious diseases originate in animals and then jump into people. We call that spillover. And so, uh, when, we're, when, we're, we're, when we're trying to understand why spillovers are increasing around the world, it's important to recognize that it is because of human activities. Human activities such as deforestation, wildlife trade, the way we raise farmed animals, and human activities that lead to climate change. Right? And we can, wow. we can dive deeper into the deforestation. There's at least three different reasons why deforestation, so clearing and degrading tropical forests, leads to more infectious disease emergence. Reason number one is that when you clear forests, you create this edge where people then, whether intentionally or not, start interacting more with the forest. Right. Right? So they build roads, they build towns, farms, whatever it is. And so there's more opportunities for people to interact with wildlife and then for those wildlife viruses to jump, viruses to jump into people. Reason number two is that just like us, when we lose our home, we get stressed, we're more likely to get sick, you know, with whether a cold or something more severe. Same thing goes for animals. When you're oh, clear-cutting the gosh. forest, we are stressing out animals, leading them to, to be more likely to get sick and then pass on, or not necessarily sick, but more likely to get infected with with pathogens and then pass those pathogens on to right. us. And finally, um, when we clear forests, we lead to loss of biodiversity, so the variety of life in that area. Mm -hmm. Biodiversity is a good thing for our health, but when we, what, what research has shown is that when you, lead, when you clear those forests and have less biodiversity, the animals that tend to disappear are ones that can only live in the forest, but the ones that survive are ones that can live alongside people. Right. Those ones that survive and can live alongside people are also the same types of species that can harbor pathogens that can then go on to infect us. And examples of where deforestation has led to outbreaks include Ebola and probably Nipah virus. Nipah virus was discovered in the 90s in Malaysia when it caused a major outbreak with, with, uh, where, where people experienced a brain infection. Nipah virus kills, in some outbreaks, more than 50% of people that it infects. Very severe infection. And again, because of that clear-cutting of forests in Malaysia, one, one leading hypothesis is that bats got displaced. So they started living in the pig farms that were put in, place, were put in those areas where forests used to exist. Then pigs got infected with that virus, and they then pass it on 
to people. Is this what people were saying about COVID as well? Is that the, the same? Am I making this up? Is that a bad link? No. The, they were saying that it came from bats, right? Yeah, you're entirely right. There's many coronaviruses that, that are related to the virus that causes COVID that have been found in bats. Oh, and the, the science... <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, well, the, the science very strongly shows that uh, wildlife, like wildlife markets were the origin of the COVID pandemic. And I know there's a, there are other theories about a lab leak, but again, if you look at the peer-reviewed science, it looks very strongly like it was wildlife markets. But even if you disregard that, I mean, we know that wildlife markets, like the commercial wildlife trade, well, I'm not- can you, can you talk about what is a wildlife market in case yeah. people haven't heard of it? Yeah. Maybe most people might have, but- and, I, and I'm really, I'm referring here to places where wildlife is sold in an urban setting. I'm not talking oh, right. about people in rural settings who, who uh, hunt wildlife for cultural reasons or for their sustenance. People should have, people have a right to access wildlife. But what I'm talking about, in a place like London or a major city in China or in New York City, we don't need to have wildlife markets where live wildlife are sold, particularly birds and mammals. And again, if you disregard the COVID example, even though most scientists in the field think that COVID originated because of that wildlife trade, even if you look at, you can look at other outbreaks, the original SARS in 2003, or the first outbreak of MPOX outside of Africa happened in 2003. That was because of the trade of African rodents into the United States for the exotic pet industry, mm. right? That led to the first outbreak of MPOX outside of, of Africa, right? So my point is that there are certain activities that we engage in as humans that are actually increasing our risk for viral outbreaks, epidemics, and pandemics. This is, cra this is crazy. I'm looking at people's faces to see if they're having the same reaction as me. I thought SARS was like a, a powder in an envelope situation. Not, I didn't realize that that was, that that was rodents being sold. Okay, yeah, keep going. Keep um, going. So you did this TED Talk, which we will all watch when it comes out. Um, what didn't you get to say? You... I talked before about the convergence of existential threats, right? For me, there is existential threats that, that I worry about constantly, but I think there's solutions to many of them. Uh, if, if we started you may not be alone. Allegedly, allegedly. You may not allegedly. be alone. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, I, you know, but climate change, pandemics, the destruction of nature, particularly the mass extinction that we're experiencing. I focus particularly on three of those threats, which are climate change, pandemics and loss of biodiversity because we have common solutions in some instances for all three right right which is repairing our broken relationship with nature so this is so ben do you have a question because i want to i'm just i'm looking at this audience i'm looking at you the only question i want to ask is how do we solve the problem but i feel like you're going in that direction i'm going so in that direction I'll let you cook. You because you mentioned solutions you mentioned <laughs> I'm stressed, I'm stressed, I'm stressed. You should all know that it's when good. we were planning this with our producer, Josie, I was like, this is going to stress Ben out. Just so you're aware. <laughs> I'm stressed, I'm stressed. Um, so you talk about solutions, right? This is actually, in the work that I, I am familiar with of your work, the thing that I find actually incredible is this is all like a lot of very intense. And for those of, I mean, you you know, on the ground with Ebola, doing this kind of in the research, you know this stuff. For, for those of us who aren't, it's a lot to take on board. But then there's a really interesting, surprising, and in some ways, I guess, simple um, solution. 
Oh, not simple, but talk to us. I want us to transition more to like, okay, so we know it's bad and we know that these threats. What do we do? How do we, how do we stop this? You, you know, I joined Conservation International two and a half years ago. And before I did, I felt so much anxiety. You know, I was working mm. for CDC, fighting outbreaks around the world. I led New York City's COVID contact tracing program. That was a privilege, privilege of a lifetime to get to, ha- get to do that type of impactful work. But I felt this anxiety that... I didn't understand the solutions. It felt like, you know, climate change is happening. I'm not doing anything. And I joined Conservation International, um, and I've never felt more hopeful for the world because now I get to work with people at all these organizations, and I get to be in forums like this and listen to people doing amazing work. Mm. And there are solutions out there. And to me, the best antidote for despair is action. And, and I've, I've have that lived experience in the last right. two and a half years, and I've seen the examples of where people have successfully saved rainforest, right? Because, again, that's what I focus on, because rainforest, just taking a step back, over 30% of the emissions reductions needed to reach our climate goals come from nature, such Mm. as keeping forests standing. Yet those nature-based solutions get less than 5% of overall climate funding. So we have this disconnect where we overlook nature on the climate side. We're also overlooking nature on the pandemic side. Because again, we don't talk much about how saving fo- rainforests might lead to fewer pandemics down the road. Yeah, but, it's the first time I've ever heard it, to be right, fair. Right, yeah. yeah. But like, if we invested in forests, for example, we have every dollar spent in saving forests is a dollar that goes a far away. Because not only are you mitigating climate change, you're saving biodiversity, and you're also potentially preventing the next pandemic, right? And people have done this before. They've shown how to save rainforests. One example that comes to mind, I'll, well, let me give you two examples. One is Health and Harmony, which is mm. this amazing nonprofit that originally started working in Indonesia that's focused on listening to indigenous peoples and local communities and then supporting those indigenous peoples and local communities in implementing solutions. And this NGO showed that, at least when it, when it comes at, to a local level, when, when local communities are engaging in deforestation, in many instances, it's because they don't have means to otherwise survive. They need to clear forests so that they can generate income to pay for basic health or other basic services. This is a matter of survival for them. So this NGO invested in healthcare in the area, and it invested in uh, training people in alternative jobs rather than logging to engage in, in other types of jobs such as organic farming. And they showed that after a decade of this type of work that there was a, a 90% reduction in the number of households engaging in logging. And at the same time, infant mortality dropped by around two-thirds. Oh That's gosh. a win-win right. for people and planet. These, these solutions exist, but for, for too long, even in my own prior life, we've, we've kept them as people and planet as an opposition, but we need to find those win-wins. The other example I'll give is from the Brazilian Amazon. From 2004 to 2012, the Brazilian government implemented this very expansive uh, effort to return territories to indigenous peoples, to crack down on illegal deforestation. And basically, they, through the course of that effort, they found that deforestation on an annual basis dropped by 70%. At the same time, agricultural output increased. Right? So there are ways to save rainforests. It's just, the question is whether we have the political will to do so. So we know, we know what to do, right? We know how to, to stop deforestation, yes. is what you're saying. Yeah. It's not the how. Exactly. 
What can I, mm. I have a question? What if I don't care about rainforests? Not in a like obviously not in a rude way, but what if like I live in a city, right? So like <laughs> there's no rainforest in London that I know of. That's correct, isn't it? There's no rainforest in London. It's what yeah. the streets are saying. But if there's no rainforest here, what role do I have to play in 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 healing that broken relationship with nature? How does that work when you're not living in or near that type of nature? We, we all play our own different role in in the climate crisis, right? And and particularly if we are based in North America or Europe. We've had a larger footprint in the current crisis than than other peoples yeah. in the world, right? That, that's something that that needs to be acknowledged mm. up front. But like I said before, this is an existential threat that is already here. We are all being affected by climate change. So even if, like, I've never visited the rainforest, I've never been to the Amazon myself. One, you know, that's a dream for me to one day go. Mm. But we all have a vested interest in mitigating climate change and adapting. To climate change, right? And so that means that if we're fortunate enough to live in a democracy, we, you know, one thing we got to do is vote. We cannot skip opportunities to vote. That that makes a huge difference. So that people come into office, and these people represent a voice of reason and and evidence-based policy, right? So that I think that's one action. And then you know, presumably those people will then hopefully engage in foreign policy efforts. To mitigate climate change more broadly, so that I, I think a lot of this is, is how we vote again if we're fortunate enough to live in a democracy. And so that's really about we we come back to this sometimes in the podcast this idea of systems change. That it's not just about in the individual action, although voting is a really powerful individual action. It's about the systems that perpetuate this. I'm wondering if, in terms of that idea of deforestation, like what does that look like? The example of Indonesia was great because it was like this local example. But what about larger scale, like deforestation efforts? That's where policy comes in, right? That's what you're talking about with Brazil. Exactly, right. So the larger scale efforts need to happen. And and again, this is not my area of expertise, but there's a lot of efforts um, right now in big policy circles mm-hmm. to uh, address like carbon credits and even biodiversity credits. Mm-hmm. And so there are many other larger efforts, which is is beyond the skills of my expertise, you know, beyond my my skill set. Um, but I will say again that there, there's a lot of talk about saving forests, yet in recent years, in many parts of the world, we've seen deforestation rates increase. Mm. And, and someone named Nicole Rycroft, uh, who I recently met actually at the TED event. And who we interviewed recently, who Did made we? you fall in love with trees. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah the canopy woman. Yeah. Oh, yeah. if you haven't listened to that one, listen to that one. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She, she says this awesome thing. To me, it's, it's bonkers. And this is like the way she puts it. But we are cutting down 100, 200-year-old trees to make pizza boxes. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. How it is absurd nuts. is that? Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. what are, you know, so it's just... There's like a real flaw in logic there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we need more Amazon boxes, yeah. please. Yeah. yeah. And I eat a lot Weird. of pizza. Like, you know, yeah. I, 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 I thrive on pizza, but... That's uh, not true. Sure. It's biodiversity. That's what um, we're talking about. Are there any other, you talk about being hopeful um, and doing this work. And I, and I agree. I think, you know, three years ago, I wasn't doing anything in climate at all. Now I'm kind of doing it every day mm-hmm. <laughs> in different ways. And I think I felt more hopeless before. 
and very hopeful now because you meet awesome people like you and all the speakers we've heard today who were doing incredible work. I'm just curious if you could talk a little bit about if there's any other examples that you've seen in your work that are really helping heal this divide between, you know, this heal this divide that we have around health and nature and people and so that it's repairing that relationship with nature. Well, the first thing I'll say is that I am so inspired by the generation, generations coming behind me. And, you know, like younger individuals seem to get the crisis in ways that when I was growing up, a lot of people didn't. Yeah, yeah. And it's amazing, right? They care so much. And um, they, like many people who, again, are younger than me, are so mission-driven mm. at, at, at a greater proportion than I think many prior generations have been, right? So to me, that gives me a lot of hope. Like my niece, for example, is, she wrote a book about the extinction crisis, like a book of poetry on the extinction crisis. And it's a dark book of poetry, but it's real. And I'm like, how did you write this? You know, it's so good. So, yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> how old is she? She's oh, now man. 15. Okay, that's young. But she yeah. wrote it, I think, when she was like maybe 12 or 13. And I guess it's like Yeah, I don't know if real. this is a, a guess, good figure or a bad No, figure. I mean, I guess it's real, right? Like, I guess it... it I think that I definitely feel like I even until possibly very recently, very much felt like climate change was the prom tomorrow problem. Mm, you know, we yeah. were preventing it. But I definitely think now it's like, as you said, it's, it's not, we are having to prevent the worst impacts of it, but it's here. Mm, yeah. And I think if you're young, you're living in a different context, maybe. Yeah. And let me give you one other example quickly, though, like in the medical field. So when I started med school in 2004, um, again, my intention was to have exactly the career that I have now, but I didn't know that it existed. I didn't understand these things. So I'd go to a lot of faculty, and they couldn't point me in the right direction, not through no fault of their own, but the conversation wasn't happening. Now, in around 2004, I, I might be wrong about this exactly, but I'm pretty sure in 2004, again, when I started med school, is when the term One Health was coined. And that's the idea that human health is dependent on the health of animals and the planet. So this is a newer concept in Western medicine, and it's gaining traction, right? Now it's become common conversations at, at the UN level, the WH, the World Health Organization level. Mm. There's even a student-led movement to grade medical schools around the world on how well they are teaching these types of com mm. concepts about One Health and planetary health. But, you know, and so I, to me, that's also amazing. There's this shift yeah, in the medical culture yeah. where we're understanding more and more about the, yeah. these, these interconnections. But I'll also add that this is something that many indigenous cultures have known for thousands of right. years, right. that we're all related. You know, we're a little bit late in, in Western medicine to the concept, but right. you know, we're catching up. What? Late in Western medicine? <laughs> yeah. Never. Impossible. It's never been yeah, heard yeah, on this yeah. podcast before. <laughs> no, I mean, oh, this, these bat ears, guys, are a little bit um, It's worth it. It's worth it's it. Great. Um, I do think this idea, you mentioned it earlier, and I wanted to come back to it, so I'm glad you said this, around the silos that we live in in our, in our work. It, you know, it seems, it seems now having met you and had these conversations, completely bizarre to me that more medical professionals aren't talking about climate deforestation, yeah. planet, and more people in climate are not thinking about health. Although maybe it's growing when we look, I think in cities we start talking about air pollution, that's probably a conversation we're having more. Do you, do you feel now that you're in this, you know, this career that you've always wanted, those silos are breaking down or are we still very much entrenched in, you know, it's, it's, no, it's this way, it's my point of view. 
I, I love this question, and I, you know, I do think that there's this slow shift, and I, I feel like we're going to see a break open in, right. in the coming years, and I'm excited about that. But look, the, these silos are on both sides. Let's look at the, the health side again. Like my own personal experience, it's taken a long time to be able to have these conversations. And even on the health side, like I, I'm so surprised the number of doctors who are not thinking about this because why are we saving human lives when we won't have a planet to live on in the very near future? And many people have children. I mean, what type of planet are we leaving our children yeah. and our future patients? To me, that's, that's scary. But again, there is that, that slow shift. Um, on the climate side, I get worried that you know, COP28 is right around the corner, right? The big UN conference on, on climate change. It has taken 27 COPs before this, finally now, 27 prior COPs, to finally get to the point where health is for the first time ever being featured in a prominent way at one of these COPs, this coming yeah. COP. Even though, again, the way that most people will experience climate change is because of the health effects right. that they will experience. So we are, we're so siloed and we have to start bridging those mm. gaps. We, we can't think of them as separate issues. Yeah. The, 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 you know what? My analysis of the situation is that the people aren't feeling the cops, man. I think these guys, I think these UN guys, they're not, for some reason, <laughs> that is entirely they're not really, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're not getting it right, but we'll, come, we'll swing back around to that one another time, don't worry. <laughs> The, those of you who are laughing knowingly know that that's like a can of worms yeah, that we're not going to open here. The cops, not, they don't like it. They don't like it. Should we talk about this? Can you tell us about these tattoos, please? Can people see them? Yeah. That's a whole sleeve. There's a. There's a. Is that an iguana? Uh, that's a tiger chameleon. So I have up here and then a lot of other spots. But I do endangered and extinct animals. Sadly, um, you know, there's never going to be a shortage of, of creatures to put on. But I have. Pangolin, all eight species of pangolin around the world are endangered. That's a crowd plane locust, tiger chameleon, geometric tortoise, have a Guam kingfisher, Amboli bush frog, uh, Jaipur gecko, uh, Amboli, uh, sorry, uh, golden rump sengi. This but, is, you, you and, and your niece are, it's dark, man. I mean, it's, it's like the coolest <laughs> thing I've ever seen. Like, this is the coolest sleeve concept I've ever seen in oh, tattoos, endangered animals, but that's also like, do you, would you look at your arm every day and think... Yeah, like, why? This is, this is terrible. <laughs> or is it, is it, like, motivating? What's the... I mean, you can show me a picture of any animal and I'll love it. Um, but particularly, <laughs> right, 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 right. like, a creepy crawly. Like, I love reptiles and bats. I mean, those are, like, definitely my favourite. Um, I, I had to, like, bagsy the bat ears immediately. Yeah, you got the bat. I got, I got, a, I got, a, I got a frog, frog so I, I'm happy. But... Um, Giraffes are cool too. Yeah, giraffes are <laughs> superior, to be fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you've, if you've watched or played The Last of Us, you know why we have a giraffe on the stage. I haven't, yeah. so I have no idea. I just, I just like giraffes. <laughs> I just love them. But, but you know, it's, it's, uh, it's addictive, I guess, like getting tattoos. That's like a, so it's like a personal thing. I'm jiu-jitsu culture. I don't know if any of you train in jiu-jitsu, but like if you're in it, you're really in it. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, it's just tattoos. part of the thing. And they, know, they mean so much to me. Incredible. <laughs> yeah. I think that we are coming towards the end. We've got one last thing we want to ask Ooh. Neil before we go. Is there anything that we haven't asked you that we should have asked you? That's not my actual question. Well, d d I know it's great interviewing technique, isn't it? I'm glad <laughs> what that you, you this is say? Uh, <laughs> What did you want to say uh, yeah, that yeah, we yeah. haven't asked you? Well, I'll just make two quick points. First of all, uh, just because I'm obsessed with vampires and zombies, there's okay. a really interesting intersection you know we use horror 
in this current day and age to help us understand some really scary things that are happening in the world, right? And that's why you see this proliferation of zombie apocalypse shows and, and movies, right? But, you know, vampires back in the 1700s and 1800s, people considered vampires a real thing. You know, the way we're talking about climate change, you know, people were talking about vampires, you know, the in some circles. Yeah. Vampires. And vampires <laughs> probably were inspired in part by rabies and tuberculosis. Right. Yeah. Right. Oh yeah. my gosh, right? <laughs> right, they know. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, and I'm a tuberculosis doctor. One day a week I see TB patients. TB is a horrible disease. After COVID, it's the leading infectious disease killer in the world. Over 1.5 million people die a year of TB. One in four people are infected with TB in the world, and that's a neglected disease. Um, but I'm just saying, like, you know, horror is a real way for us to understand the world and what right. we're experiencing. And so, uh, Last of Us, I appreciate the show because it really put fungal disease, I think, in the spotlight in a way that hadn't happened before. And also, we're talking about climate change and health intersection in new mm. ways. Yeah. And I heard something about a f- fungal disease where people are breathing in the spores now. Yeah. That's... that's that's not the zombie one, though. No, no, and, and again, just to be clear, like, I don't think we're going to see, like, human zombies, zombies yeah, because yeah, yeah. but you're right about the inhalation of spores, particularly in people with, with weakened immune systems, diseases like coccidiomycosis, they can be devastating, and we might see the spread because of right. climate change. Models show that it will be spreading more. And this is something we haven't talked about a little bit, but the adaptation that's required in the health service. Like, we were talking, I heard, like, this summer in France, they were seeing tropical diseases in Paris and the health services are not like that's not what you're looking for if you're a Parisian Mm. GP right same thing here do you think that there's going to have to be that adaptation on in the medical field as well to start expecting that kind of unexpected yeah and I'm I'm so glad that there's a lot of conversation about this in the medical field in ways that there haven't been before Um, and so we need better diagnostics we need better medicines right we need better vaccines all that needs to happen. But my concern is that we're so focused on the band-aids. Because we right. need all those things right. to save lives. But that's a band-aid on the larger problem, which is we, our activities are driving these infectious diseases yeah. to occur. So we should also invest in preventing them by fixing that relationship yeah. with nature. Right. We're not going to cure our way out of it. Yeah, I like the yeah, way yeah, you put yeah, that. Yeah. yeah, I like the way I put that as well. Yeah. Every now and then, I, I, yeah. right. I've got some. And now, it's time for our climate confessions. Let's fess up to the bad habits we just can't kick. Climate confessions, Neil, to tell you a bit more about it, is uh, a question we ask every single one of our guests. So when Ben and I started doing this podcast about, I don't know, two years ago? Four seasons ago. Yeah, five (laughs) seasons ago. We... um, there was this real feeling we had that maybe everyone who does this kind of work in climate is perfect. Mm. And that that's, the, that's like a prerequisite for having to, to be impactful and effective in their climate work. But actually, we're all just human and we're all imperfect. And so we get our esteemed experts to confess their climate sins. One. Um, so your climate confession. Or several. I will, uh, Ben, do you want to do an example to start and then I'll finish with one? Oh, uh, yeah, I've got a good one. So okay. uh, we've been, how many seasons deep are we? Five, five. now. Five. We have yeah, made yeah, many yeah. confessions. We've done, listen, I've confessed my way into heaven, I think, at this point. <laughs> I've done a lot of, of telling of my secrets here. But one that I realised the other day was when we were planning for this event, Marin told me I had to source an outfit that was sustainable. Yes. And I realised... 
I didn't know where to start with that. I had no idea. I looked through my wardrobe. I was like, no, All Saints, no, Zara, no, nothing. There was nothing in there that could be used for this purpose. So fortunately, I've managed to find a suit uh, by my friends or from my friends at Batch London, uh, which is a beautiful suit if you're listening to this podcast. And you should definitely look and invest in their suits. But it's it's slow fashion, sustainable. um, But my confession is, this is now, I don't even own this. They've they've loaned this out to me. So I actually still have no sustainable clothes. Um, so I've got, to, I've got to do a better job, man. <laughs> I'm, I'm trash right now. But I'm going to get better. I am going to get better. I am. I am. Uh, with, I don't know how you're going to follow that, but do you, do you have a climate confession? Well, th- yeah, that's a hard act to follow. But you, you said trash and clothing. So I have to say this shirt right here is by this designer, Timothy Westbrook, who makes clothing out of trash. And so he is amazing. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not sure you understand the concept of the climate <laughs> confessions. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> my confession in all seriousness. That was just to make you feel yeah. bad. Yeah. Yeah. So you were even more trash. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, uh, uh, he is also my friend, but, so just be aware. But um, <laughs> the, my confession is that, look, I, I love animals. I've tried for so long to go vegan, but I, I eat a lot of pizza. <gasps> um, yeah. And also, I mean, I, I grew up eating meat, and, and so I have these intense cravings for chicken sometimes and in a moment of weakness I'll eat chicken and, and it <laughs> a pains moment me of weakness. Uh, um, <laughs> but like you know I really appreciate what you're saying right? We're, we, we don't need like I think uh, Clover, uh, Clover has said this before mm. we don't need a uh, hundred perfect activists we need a million imperfect activists mm. and I'm far from perfect thank you for that confession that was a good confession so to wrap up Neil thank you for joining us on this thank very you spooky so much. spooky spooky also oh, you special. have to come back man because I'm I'm still feeling stressed I'm going to be honest so yeah. I know you I know you're sitting on more solutions and I need them desperately so we'll do we'll do part two great yeah good. great so round of applause thank please. you so much thank you. Thank you for joining us this week. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please hit the follow button to make sure you get next week's release. We are now officially crowdsourcing Climate Confessions, so please leave yours in the ratings and the reviews section, and we'll shout out to you next time. And shout out to our fabulous team behind the pod. This episode was produced by Josie Coulter. Artwork designed by Rebecca Mingus. Curation by Marion Pasha. Mixed and engineered by Ben Beheshti. Music also by Ben Beheshti. Presented by Ben Hurst and Mariam Pasha. Remember, stay curious. <laughs>